Section 23 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11. Section 23. Selected Works by Daniel Defoe From Colonel Jack Colonel Jack and Captain Jack Escape Arrest We had not parlayed thus long, but though in the dead of night came a man to the other inn door, for, as I said above, there are two inns in that place, and called for a pot of beer. But the people were all in bed and would not rise. He asked them if they had seen two fellows come that way upon one horse. The man said he had, that they went by in the afternoon and asked the way to Cambridge, but did not stop only to drink one mug. Oh, says he, are they gone to Cambridge? Then I'll be with them quickly. I was awake in a little garret of the next inn where we lodged, and hearing the fellow call at the door, got up and went to the window, having some uneasiness at every noise I heard and by that means heard the whole story. Now the case is plain, our hour was not come, our fate had determined other things for us, and we were to be reserved for it. The matter was thus. When we first came to Bournebridge, we called at the first house and asked the way to Cambridge, drank a mug of beer, and went on, and they might see us turn off to go the way they directed. But night coming on, and we being very weary, we thought we should not find the way, and we came back in the dusk of the evening and went into the other house, being the first as we came back, as there where we had called before was the first when we went forward. You may be sure I was alarmed now, and indeed I had reason to be. The captain was in bed and fast asleep, but I wakened him and roused him with a noise that frighted him enough. Rise, Jack, said I. We are both ruined. They come after us hither. Indeed, I was wrong to terrify him at that rate, for he started and jumped out of bed and ran directly to the window, not knowing where he was and not quite awake, was going to jump out of the window, but I laid hold of him. What are you going to do? says I. I won't be taken, says he. Let me alone. Where are they? This was all confusion, and he was so out of himself with the fright and being overcome with sleep that I had much to do to prevent him jumping out of the window. However, I held him fast and thoroughly wakened him, then all was well again, and he was presently composed. So I told him the story, and we sat together upon the bedside, considering what we should do. Upon the whole, as the fellow that called was apparently gone to Cambridge, we had nothing to fear, but to be quiet till daybreak, and then to mount and be gone. Accordingly, as soon as day peeped, we were up, and having happily informed ourselves of the road at the other house, and being told that the road to Cambridge turned off on the left hand, and that the road to Newmarket lay straight ahead forward. I say, having learned this, the captain told me he would walk away on foot toward Newmarket, and so when I came to go out I should appear as a single traveller, and accordingly he went out immediately, and away he walked. And he travelled so hard that when I came to follow I thought once that he had dropped me, for though I rode hard I got no sight of him for an hour. At length, having passed the great bank called the Devil's Ditch, I found him, and took him up behind me, and we rode double till we came almost to the end of Newmarket Town. Just at the hither house in the town stood a horse at a door, just as it was at Puckeridge. 
Now, says Jack, if the horse was at the other end of the town, I would have him, as sure as we had the other at Puckeridge. But it would not do. So he got down and walked through the town on the right-hand side of the way. He had not got halfway through the town, but the horse, having somehow or other got loose, came trotting gently on by himself, and nobody following him. The captain, an old soldier at such work, as soon as the horse was got a pretty way before him, and that he saw nobody followed, sets up a run after the horse, and the horse, hearing him follow, ran the faster. Then the captain calls out, Stop the horse! And by this time the horse had got almost to the farther end of the town, the people of the house where he stood not missing him all the while. Upon his calling out, Stop the horse! The poor people of the town, such as were next at hand, ran from both sides of the way and stopped the horse for him, as readily as could be, and held him for him till he came up. He very gravely comes up to the horse, hits him a blow or two, and calls him dog for running away, gives the man tuppence that catched him for him, mounts, and away he comes after me. This was the oddest adventure that could have happened, for the horse stole the captain, the captain did not steal the horse. When he came up to me, Now, Colonel Jack, says he, what do you say to good luck? Would you have had me refuse the horse when he came so civilly to ask me to ride? Uh, no, no, said I. You have got this horse by your wit, not by design. And you may go on now, I think. You are in a safer condition than I am, if we are taken. Colonel Jack finds Captain Jack hard to manage. We arrived here very easy and safe and while we were considering of what way we should travel next, we found we were got to a point, and that there was no way now left but that by the washes into Lincolnshire, and that was represented as very dangerous. So an opportunity offering of a man that was travelling over the fens, we took him for our guide, and went with him to Spalding, and thence to a town called Deeping, and so to Stamford in Lincolnshire. This is a large, populous town, and it was market-day when we came to it, so we put in at a little house at the hither end of the town, and walked into the town. Here it was not possible to restrain my captain from playing his feats of art, and my heart ached for him. I told him I would not go with him, for he would not promise to leave off, and I was so terribly concerned at the apprehensions of his venturous humour that I would not so much as stir out of my lodgings. But it was in vain to persuade him. He went into the market and found a mountebank there, which was what he wanted. How he picked two pockets there in one quarter of an hour, and brought to our quarters a piece of New Holland of eight or nine L's, a piece of stuff, and played three or four francs more in less than two hours, and how afterwards he robbed a doctor of physic, and yet came off clear in them, all this, I say, as above, belongs to his story, not mine. I scolded heartily at him when he came back, and told him he would certainly ruin himself, and me too, before he left off, and threatened in so many words that I would leave him and go back, and carry the horse to Pucker Ridge, where we borrowed it, and go to London by myself. He promised amendment, but as we resolved, now we were in the great road, to travel by night, so it, being not yet night, he gives me the slip again and was not gone half an hour, but he comes back with a gold watch in his hand. Come, says he, why ain't you ready? I am ready to go as soon as you will. And with that he pulls out the gold watch. I was amazed at such a thing as that in a country town, but it seems there were prayers at one of the churches in the evening, 
and he, placing himself as the occasion directed, found the way to be so near a lady as to get it from her side, and walk off with it unperceived. The same night we went away by moonlight, after having the satisfaction to hear the watch cried, and ten guineas offered for it again. He would have been glad of the ten guineas instead of the watch, but durst not venture to carry it home. Well, says I, you are afraid, and indeed you have reason. Give it to me. I will venture to carry it again. But he would not let me, but told me that when we came into Scotland we might sell anything there without danger, which was true indeed, for there they asked us no questions. We set off, as I said, in the evening by moonlight, and travelled hard, the road being very plain and large, until we came to Grantham, by which time it was about two in the morning, and all the town, as it were, dead asleep. So we went on for Newark, where we reached about eight in the morning, and there we laid down and slept most of the day. And by this sleeping so continually in the daytime, I kept him from doing a great deal of mischief, which he would otherwise have done. Colonel Jack's first wife is not disposed to be economical. We soon found a house proper for our dwelling, and so went to housekeeping. We had not been long together, but I found that gay temper of my wife returned, and she threw off the mask of her gravity and good conduct that I had so long fancied was her mere natural disposition, and now, having no more occasion for disguises, she resolved to seem nothing but what she really was, a wild, untamed colt, perfectly loose and careless to conceal any part, no, not the worst of her conduct. She carried on this air of levity to such an excess that I could not but be dissatisfied at the expense of it, for she kept company that I did not like, lived beyond what I could support, and sometimes lost at play more than I cared to pay. Upon which one day I took occasion to mention it but lightly, and said to her by way of raillery that we lived merrily for as long as it would last. She turned short upon me. What do you mean? says she. Why, you do not pretend to be uneasy, do ye? Uh, no, no, madam, not I. By no means, it is no business of mine, you know, said I, to inquire what my wife spends, or whether she spends more than I can afford, or less. I only desire the favor to know, as near as you can guess, how long you will please to take to dispatch me, for I would not be too long a-dying. I do not know what you talk of, says she. You may die as leisurely, or as hastily as you please, when your time comes. I ain't a-going to kill you, as I know of. But you are going to starve me, madam, said I, and hunger is as leisurely a death as breaking upon the wheel. I starve you? Why, are not you a great Virginia merchant? And did I not bring you fifteen hundred pounds? What would you have? Surely you can maintain a wife out of that, can't you? Yes, madam, says I. I could maintain a wife, but not a gamester. Though you had brought me fifteen hundred pounds a year, no estate is big enough for a box and dice. She took fire at that, and flew out in a passion. And after a great many bitter words, told me in short, that she saw no occasion to alter her conduct, and, as for not maintaining her, when I could not maintain her longer, she would find some way or other to maintain herself. Some time after the verse rattle of this kind, she vouchsafed to let me know that she was pleased to be with child. I was at first glad of it, in hopes that it would help to abate her madness. But it was all one, and her being with child only added to the rest. 
for she made such preparations for her lying in and, and other appendixes of a child being born, that in short I found she would be downright distracted, and I took the liberty to tell her one day she would soon bring herself and me to destruction, and entreated her to consider that such figures as those were quite above us and out of our circle, and in short that I neither could nor would allow such expenses, that at this rate two or three children would effectually ruin me, and that I desired her to consider what she was doing. She told me with an air of disdain that it was not of her business to consider anything of the matter, and that if I could not allow it, she would allow it herself, and I might do my worst. I begged her to consider things for all that, and not drive me to extremities, that I married her to love and cherish her, and use her as a good wife ought to be used, but not to be ruined and undone by her. In a word, nothing could mollify her, nor any argument persuade her to moderation, but withal she took it so heinously that I should pretend to restrain her, that she told me in so many words she would drop her burthen with me, and that if I did not like it, she would take care of herself. She would not live with me an hour, for she would not be restrained, not she, and talked a long while at that rate. I told her, as to her child, which she called her burthen, it should be no burthen to me. As to the rest, she might do as she pleased. It might, however, do me this favor, that I should have no more lying thins at the rate of 138 pounds at a time, as I find she intended it should be now. She told me she could not tell that. If she had no more by me, she hoped she should by somebody else. Say you so, madam, said I, then they that get them shall keep them. She did not know that neither, she said, and so turned it off jeering, as if it were laughing at me. This last discourse nettled me, I must confess, and the more because I had a great deal of it, and very often, till, in short, we began at length to enter into a friendly treaty about parting. Nothing could be more criminal than the several discourses we had upon this subject. She demanded a severed maintenance, and in particular at the rate of three hundred pounds a year, and I demanded security of her that she should not run me into debt. She demanded the keeping of the child with an allowance of a hundred pounds a year for that, and I demanding that I should be secured from being charged for keeping any she might have by somebody else, as she had threatened me. In the interval, and during these contests, she dropped her burthen, as she called it, and brought me a son, a very fine child. She was content during her lying in to abate a little, though it was but a very little indeed, of the great expense she had intended, and with some difficulty and persuasion was content with a suit of childbed linen at fifteen pounds, instead of one she had intended at threescore, and this she magnified as a particular testimony of her condescension, and a yielding to my avaricious temper, as she called it. The Devil Does Not Concern Himself With Petty Matters From The Modern History of the Devil Nor will I undertake to tell you, till I have talked farther with him about it, how far the devil is concerned to discover frauds, detect murders, reveal secrets, and especially to tell where any money is hid, and show folks where to find it. It is an odd thing that Satan should think it of consequence to come and tell us where such a miser hid a strong box, or where such an old woman buried her chamber pot full of money, the value of all which is perhaps but a trifle, when at the same time he lets so many veins of gold, so many unexhausted mines, 
nay, mountains of silver, as we may depend on it, are hid in the bowels of the earth, and which it would be so much to the good of whole nations to discover, lie still there, and never say one word of them to anybody. Besides, how does the devil's doing things so far into himself, and so out of his way, agree with the rest of his character, namely, showing a friendly disposition to mankind, or doing beneficent things? This is so beneath Satan's quality, and looks so little, that I scarce know what to say to it. But that which is still more poignant in the case is, these things are so out of his road, and so far into his calling, that it shocks our faith in them, and seems to clash with all the just notions we have of him and of his business in the world. The like is to be said of those merry little turns we bring him in acting with us and upon us, upon trifling and simple occasions, such as tumbling chairs and stools about the house, setting pots and kettles bottom upward, tossing the glass and crockery ware about without breaking, and such like mean foolish things beneath the dignity of the devil, who in my opinion is rather employed in setting the world with the bottom upward, tumbling kings and crowns about, and dashing the nations one against another, raising tempests and storms, whether at sea or on shore, and in a word doing capital mischiefs, suitable to his nature and agreeable to his name devil, and suited to that circumstance of his condition which I have fully represented in the primitive part of his exiled state. But to bring in the devil playing at pushpin with the world, or, like Dominician, catching flies, that is to say, doing nothing to the purpose, this is not only deluding ourselves, but putting a slur upon the devil himself. And I say, I shall not dishonor Satan so much as to suppose anything in it. However, as I must have a care to how I take away the proper materials of winter evening frippery, and leave the good wives nothing of the devil to frighten the children with, I shall carry the weighty point no farther. No doubt the devil and Dr. Faustus were very intimate. I should rob you of a very significant proverb if I should so much as doubt it. No doubt the devil showed himself in the glass to that fair lady who looked in to see where to place her patches. But then it should follow, too, that the devil is an enemy to the ladies wearing patches, and that has some difficulties in it which we cannot easily reconcile. But we must tell the story, and leave out the consequences. Devoe addresses his public, from An Appeal to Honor and Justice. I hope the time has come at last, when the voice of moderate principles may be heard. Hitherto the noise has been so great, and the prejudices and passions of men so strong, that it had been but in vain to offer at any argument or for any man to talk of giving a reason for his actions. And this alone has been the cause why, when other men, who I think have less to say in their own defense, are appealing to the public and struggling to defend themselves, I alone have been silent under the infinite clamors and reproaches, causeless curses, unnatural threatenings, and the most unjust and injurious treatment in the world. I hear much of people's calling out to punish the guilty, but very few are concerned to clear the innocent. I hope some will be inclined to judge impartially, and have yet reserved so much of the Christian as to believe, and at least to hope, that a rational creature cannot abandon himself so as to act without some reason, and are willing not only to have me defend myself, but to be able to answer for me when they hear me causelessly insulted by others, 
and therefore are willing to have such just arguments put into their mouths as the cause will bear. As for those who are prepossessed, and according to the modern justice of parties are resolved to be so, let them go. I am not arguing with them, but against them. They act so contrary to justice, to reason, to religion, so contrary to the rules of Christians and of good manners, that they are not to be argued with, but to be exposed or entirely neglected. I have a receipt against all the uneasiness which it may be supposed to give me, and that is, to contemn slander, and think it not worth the least concern, neither should I think it worth while to give any answer to it, if it were not on some other account, of which I shall speak as I go on. If any young man ask me why I am in such haste to publish this matter at this time, among many other good reasons which I could give, these are some. 1. I think I have long enough been made fabula vulgi, and borne the weight of general slander, and I should be wanting to truth, to my family, and to myself, if I did not give a fair and true state of my conduct, for impartial men to judge of, when I am no more in being to answer for myself. 2. By the hints of mortality, and by the infirmities of a life of sorrow and fatigue, I have reason to think I am not a great way off from, if not very near to, the great ocean of eternity, and the time may not be long ere I embark on that last journey. Wherefore I think I should even account with this world before I go, that no actions, slanders, may lie against my heirs, executors, administrators, and assigns to disturb them in the peaceful possession of their father's character inheritance. 3. I fear, God grant I have not a second sight in it, that this lucid interval of temper and moderation which shines, though dimly too, upon us in this time, will be of but short continuance, and that some men, who know not how to use the advantage God has put into their hands with moderation, will push, in spite of the best prince in the world, at such extravagant things, and act with such an intemperate forwardness, as will revive the heats and animosities which wise and good men were in hopes should be allayed by the happy ascension of the king to the throne. It is, and ever was, my opinion, that moderation is the only virtue by which the peace and tranquillity of this nation can be preserved. Even the king himself, I believe his majesty will allow me that freedom, can only be happy in the enjoyment of the crown by a moderative administration. If his majesty should be obliged, contrary to his known disposition, to join with intemperate counsels, if it does not lessen his security, I am persuaded it will lessen his satisfaction. It cannot be pleasant or agreeable, and I think it cannot be safe, to any just prince to rule over a divided people, split into incensed and exasperated parties. Though a skillful mariner may have courage to master a tempest, and goes fearlessly through a storm, yet he can never be said to delight in the danger. A fresh fair gale and a quiet sea is the pleasure of his voyage, and we have a saying worth notice to them that are otherwise minded, quit ama periculum, perebit in illu. Engaging a maidservant, from everybody's business is nobody's business. Besides, the fear of spoiling their clothes makes them afraid of household work, so that in a little time we shall have none but chambermaids and nursery maids, and of this let me give you one instance. 
my family is composed of myself and sister, a man and maid, and being without the last, a young wench came to hire herself. The man had gone out, and my sister above stairs, so I opened the door myself, and this person presented herself to my view, dressed completely, more like a visitor than a servant-maid. She, not knowing me, asked for my sister. Pray, madam, said I, be pleased to walk into the parlor. She shall wait on you presently. Accordingly, I handed madame in, who took it very cordially. After some apology, I left her alone for a minute or two, while I, stupid wretch, ran up to my sister and told her there was a gentlewoman below come to visit her. Dear brother, said she, don't leave her alone. Go down and entertain her while I dress myself. Accordingly, down I went, and talked of indifferent affairs. Meanwhile, my sister dressed herself all over again, not being willing to be seen in an undress. At last, she came down dressed as clean as her visitor. But how great was my surprise when I found my fine lady a common servant wench. My sister, understanding what she was, began to inquire what wages she expected. She modestly asked but eight pounds a year. The next question was, what work she could do to deserve such wages? To which she answered she could clean a house or dress a common family dinner. But cannot you wash, replied my sister, or get up linen? She answered in the negative, and said she would undertake neither, nor would she go into a family that did not put out their linen to wash and hire a charwoman to scour. She desired to see the house, and having carefully surveyed it, said the work was too hard for her, nor could she undertake it. This put my sister beyond all patience, and me into the greatest admiration. Young woman, she said, you have made a mistake. I want a housemaid, and you are a chambermaid. No, madam, replied she, I am not a needlewoman enough for that. And yet you ask eight pounds a year, replied my sister. Yes, madam, said she, nor shall I bait a farthing. Then get you gone for a lazy impudent baggage, said I. You want to be a boarder, not a servant. Have you a fortune or estate that you dress at that rate? No, sir, said she, but I hope I may wear what I work for without offence. What? You work? interrupted my sister. Why, you do not seem willing to undertake any work. You will not wash nor scour. You cannot dress a dinner for company. You are no needlewoman, and our little house of two rooms on a floor is too much for you. For God's sake, what can you do? Madam, replied she pertly, I know by business, and do not fear service. There are more places than parish churches. If you wash at home, you should have a laundry maid. If you give entertainment, you must have a cook maid. If you have any needlework, you should have a chamber maid. And such a house as this is enough for a housemaid in all conscience. I was so pleased at the wit, and astonished at the impudence of the girl, so dismissed her with thanks for her instructions, assuring her that when I kept four maids, she should be housemaid if she pleased. THE DEVIL From the True-Born Englishman Wherever God erects a house of prayer, the devil always builds a chapel there and twill be found upon examination, the latter has the largest congregation. For ever since he first debauched the mind, he made a perfect conquest of mankind. With uniformity of service he reigns with general aristocracy. No non-conforming sects disturb his reign, for of his yoke there's very few complain. He knows the genius and the inclination, and matches proper sins for every nation. 
He needs no standing army government. He always rules us by our own consent. His laws are easy, and his gentle sway makes it exceedingly pleasant to obey. The list of his vice-regents and commanders outdoes your Caesars or your Alexanders. They never fail of his infernal aid, and he's a certain ne'er to be betrayed. Through all the world they spread his vast command, and thus the eternal empire is maintained. They rule so politically and so well, as if they were Lord Justices of Hell. Duly divided to debauch mankind, and plant infernal dictates in his mind. There is a God from the storm. For in the darkest of the black abode, there's not a devil but believes a God. Old Lucifer has sometimes tried to have himself deified. But devils nor men the being of God denied, till men of late found out new ways to sin, and turned the devil out to let the atheist in. But when the mighty element began, and storms the weighty truth explain, almighty power upon the whirlwind rode, and every blast proclaimed aloud, There is, there is, there is a God. End of section 23 Recording by Todd